This morning's scripture reading will be Psalms chapter 16. Psalms chapter 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord, my goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all, all, in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance in my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord victim is, you read that passage, it says it's a victim of David. I think today it was a, a victim of Millie Rose. <laughs> Thank you. Let me, uh, let me start some prayer today. <clears throat> Father, we come to the cross, we come before you, to your throne, throne in which there is true, pure worship, always going on, without end. And Father, before that throne, we, uh, by faith, we enter it. Well, we ask that you give us a vision of it, that you would uh, guide us through your word today to see what true worship is. Just open our hearts to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. There's a lot going on that gets our eyes in the news, I know, and uh, I frequent a, a website that talks about, kind of looks at church issues and things like that. This article came up about a church in Denver that I thought I would read to start off today because I thought it was relevant to what we're going to be looking at. Denver, Colorado. According to eyewitnesses at local church concert venue, The Awakening, some guy got up and launched into a lame speech right in the middle of the concert Sunday morning totally and completely killing the mood for those in attendance. The high-skilled rock band had reportedly just finished a quiet, powerful ballad, bringing many of those in attendance to tears when the disturbance occurred. Talk about inappropriate, one man said after the concert. We, like, came here to be entertained, not lectured by some guy. Way to harsh my mellow, whoever you are. The other concert attendees expressed similar sentiments, wondering who the random guy was who came up and talked about whatever for 20 minutes. 
Bewildered, the band gave the random guy some time to talk before quietly stepping on stage behind him and building up into another ballad, which the guy thankfully took his cue to say some random stuff with his eyes closed and get off the stage at long last. That was a close one, but I think we managed to turn things around, the lead percussionist told reporters as we prepared for the evening encore concert. Once in a while, you get some weirdo who will interrupt things and get on to some boring ramp for a while with a book in his hand, but we were able to get him out of there before he did too much damage. When we asked him, who do you think you are, after the words, the guy sheepishly said, your pastor. Like, we're supposed to know what that means. The awakening promises to heighten security so that we'll be on the lookout for anyone else attempting to interrupt the concert next Sunday. Good thing. I don't know if all of you appreciate satire like I do. From the nervous chuckles in the room, I kind of assume you probably don't. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, it's, a, it's a website that takes uh, some social issues and church issues and kind of, they create fake, fake news articles that kind of address them. But uh, as comic as it is, uh, it does spell out a lot of churches in our country, I think. And even, if we're honest, probably some little sentiments in our own heart about what we think about when we think of what is worship and um, what has it turned into in the church. So we're going to be um, looking at that today and the next two weeks. I wanted to get four weeks, but um, I didn't, so we're going to have to cram it into three, so I really apologize. Um, you know how that goes. This, this series actually started uh, a bit further back than I thought it had. I've been listening to a book. Okay, confession time. I listen to this book when I go running, and I haven't run in like four weeks or more. Okay, Leah's shaking her head. Like six or eight weeks. <laughs> so I have to kind of force myself. So I've probably been listening to this book for a good three or four months. Um, and it's been building in the back of my head. So there was, there was that. Um, and I was seeing some threads on it. And as I looked at uh, being able to preach in the next few months, I was thinking of some directions. Um, but this last month, as many of you guys know, our church sent seven of us to a music leaders conference back in Nashville that was hosted, um, bringing um, music leaders from all over the world there to, to hear really good um, messages, some really good themes. The theme of the conference was singing the psalms in your church, and um, it was really powerful as each of these speakers in the sessions we went to talked about a particular psalm or the value of psalms. Um, but there were some other overarching themes I pulled out of there that I really felt God wanted me to pass along, and as I looked at the things that God has been teaching me, I felt this is what I'm supposed to channel forth to you. So two things I'll warn you of. If you guys don't know this about me, um, I am not very original. Uh, I pass along whatever I learn and just channel it through. And when I see that uh, I'm going to be speaking soon, I look at, well, what has God been teaching me? And is that something that is for myself? Or is it something that I am supposed to pass along to the church? And sometimes, usually it's both. Um, so... This is something that a lot of the material I'm not going to take credit for. I'm passing along gems and wisdom pieces that I picked up, and I just wanted to um, pass along to you. But um, what I hope that we can cover is to be able to get down to the foundation of what it is that we call praise and worship, and get down to the very root cause of what it is when we talk about worshiping the Lord. We started our first song today with worshiping talking about a song that's all about worship the king. And, and we're going to look at what that is. 
We're not going to be able to go into every aspect of it, of course, um, but I hope that we can get down to at least the very root, what I am seeing to me, and it's, it's really um, upturning a lot of my approach to the scripture and to my relationship with the Lord as a whole, um, causing me to look at it fresh. I hope we can get down to that. If you've been here the past five weeks, uh, Steve went through a series on 1 John in which he looked at the, uh, the evidences of salvation, looking at five different points. And in his concluding uh, message last week, he brought up a couple things that uh, were very relevant to where we're going, and I'm going to use them as a springboard. He asked us two questions that are very important. One of them is, who is your God? And the other one, similar to it, is who is on the throne of your heart? Who are you really worshiping? Who is really on the throne that, that you are spending time dedicating to? And it's from this place that I think we need to start today. So really, this is, this is a continuation of what Steve was talking about at the end there. Um, we just saw, if you guys had the prayer chain, Steve is on his way down to Chico because it looks like Drew is having his baby. So do be praying for him today. Uh, he's not able to be here. But um, just a little side note, I saw that before the service uh, as I think of Steve here. But be praying for Drew and Jessica. Um, who is your God? Who is, who is on the throne of your heart? And this is at the core of it. As we look at, um, do we have a, oh, there it is. Look, I actually have this. Look at that. When we look at what is worship, um, usually the, the safest and easiest, and quite frankly, I'm going to be honest here, boring place sometimes to start is looking at the definitions of it, but it's good. It is always good hermeneutics and good practice to open up the word, look at it, look at some original languages and see what does the word worship mean. We have, today we have worship everything, worship services, worship music, worship leaders, worship guides, books on worship, and we have a bunch of uses of the word praise. So what is it that we mean as Christians when we talk about this? What are we even talking about? If we look at the original, well, which way? I always forget which way is up. First turn it on. There we go. All right. We look at the originals. In the Hebrew, there's this word, which you don't have to try to pronounce because it's right here, shaka. And it is used the most in the Old Testament for worship. Um, the Greek, as you guys know, our Bible is written in two languages, a little bit of a third, Aramaic, but mostly Hebrew and Greek. The Greek word that's used the most is um, proskuneo, and that's this word here. There is a third word in the Greek that's used about 20 times which uh, is latreo, and it means more serving. But these two ones, the, the Greek and the Hebrew, have to do a lot with, like, the, the word was literally prostrating yourself down before, bowing down, putting yourself. The Greek word even had the connotation of a dog um, licking its master's hand, that kind of servitude of coming. And so this, this idea of worship, as it's being conducted, when we see it in Scripture, usually looks like that. In English, if we look at the history of the word worship, it actually comes from an old English word that was literally worth-ship. So it was rendering worth to something. Okay? So this is good, <clears throat> but it's not, it's not the core of it. This kind of stuff, if you guys, if we wrapped up the sermon right here and walked out, you'd have some good head knowledge. You could say, that's good. I understand how it's been used throughout the scripture. But we need to get down to the core of it. We need to get even deeper. This is... These words, as we see them in Scripture, we see how they are manifested. This is people prostrating themselves once they reach that point where they are worshiping. But what I want to know is how do they get to that point? 
What gets them to the point where they are worshiping? How does their heart propel them to their face on the ground? And that's what I want to dig into. The best way to do that is we're going to have to start peeling layers off and going deeper and deeper. And I think the best way to do that is by looking, looking at what worship is not. And that's what these next few things. First off, worship is not just an experience. Um, usually when we think of worship, we think of it as a feeling, a state you get into. You know, a song might get you there. You might hear um, phrases from people that say, man, I really like the worship at, at that church. Those guys really know how to worship. I was really feeling the worship today. It was a great worship service. I've even heard in my uh, millennial contemporaries, get your worship on. Um, you know, there's this kind of idea behind worship that it's an experience of you got to get into the zone. You got to get into the mood. Um, in some ways, it's true, but it's not the whole of it, okay? Um, usually, as you guys know, when most people in the church, in America at least, refer to worship, we're talking about music. Uh, and they, they talk, you have worship pastors, you have worship leaders, worship singer, whatever. Um, at Oak Grove, we, we try to take a broader definition. It's why in your bulletin it says it's the worship service. We believe everything here is the, the entire thing that we do is worship, from teaching Sunday school to the nursery to cleaning up or whatever it is, it's all an act of worship, and we do believe that. And I do think that's, that's a good, um, that's a step up. We, we take it to the point of it being a lifestyle, and you will hear that your life is worship. Romans 12, 1, 2, you offer your life as a living sacrifice, and this is your spiritual act of worship. This is true, okay? So it is a lifestyle. That's one layer deeper. Um, it's more than just a song service. Your life is your worship. Um, but even in this, this higher road, if you feel like calling it that, that it's, we're taking it a step further than just, just the music. We're saying, well, my life is my worship. Okay, it's got to be deeper even than that. It's got to go deeper because still we're asking a question, why do you worship? Why do you get, what gets you to that point? What brings your heart to that? When we look at this, there's a lot of things in lifestyle and churches are structured around whether it's a feeling or some churches, it's all about liturgy, and that's their form of worship or tradition, a certain cadence or pattern of music, a state of mind. Um, worship is something that you can do a right way or a wrong way. And on all of this, I think we have to be careful. We've got to go deeper. The next thing, which would seem to be the most obvious one, would be, well, God commands it. And I'll be honest with you, this is where I've lived probably most of my life, is in this zone right here. Why worship? I don't feel like worshiping. Well, God told you to. Do it. Okay. Oh, worship the king. And I'm there. Is my heart there? Sometimes. Sometimes it's not. Looking at, at worship as a command, though, is very critical. And I want you guys to understand, in none of these, I'm not minimizing or saying they're the wrong thing. No way. We're going deeper. We're peeling off layers. The layers aren't bad, Okay but they are layers upon something. We're getting down to the core. So the command to worship is very critical in Scripture. It is all throughout there. Why don't you guys turn over to Psalms 99? We don't have to do every one of these, but since you guys are probably still in the Psalms anyways, and there's two of those right next to each other, we'll do Psalms 99. 
if you have ever read the Psalms even one time, you know probably I could have picked a good uh, 149 of the 150 Psalms and uh, there's some command to worship in here. But you see in Psalm 99, you look, um, verse 3, let them, the people, praise your excellent and awesome name. Um, in verse 5, exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstep, holy is he. You look and you see in verse 9 the same thing, exalt the Lord, worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. You see the exclamation points in there? These are commands, these are do this, exalt the Lord, lift up his name, exalt him. It's very important. Psalm 100 is one of the, it's a very common one that we've heard, but this, the whole thing, make a joyful noise to the Lord, serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing, and, and this whole thing, enter in his, thanks, his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, give thanks to him, bless his name. You guys, as we already referenced, we looked at um, Romans 12, 1 to 2, uh, or I kind of mentioned that, where we know that in the New Testament, we're encouraged as Christians to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, and that's our spiritual act of worship. Turn to Romans cha or, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews 12, 28, tells us right there as well the same thing. Um, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In Revelation 14, 7, says, And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who has made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This is towards the end uh, in the last days, of course, on earth. But you see from beginning to end, there is a command to worship the Lord. And likewise, the commands to have no other gods before him are common throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, where you see the Ten Commandments, the first and second ones. You're supposed to only have no other gods before him. You're not supposed to create a carved image and bow down to it, worship no other. And God is very clear right there about, I'm a jealous God. I'm not going to share my glory with anyone else. I won't do it. And you read throughout the Old Testament, sometimes he's really harsh on that. Okay, so we do have a strong command in Scripture to worship, all right? But here's the problem. We're looking for the core of why we worship. And as I already told you, uh, in many ways, I think in my life, I've stopped here. I've come up to this of, I'm commanded to, and if, if I'm not worshiping the Lord, well, then I'm a rebel, and I have sin in my heart. I need to get over that. Now, that's untrue. But our God is the remarkable thing about him is he doesn't just give rules without reason. Maybe sometimes he does. I think everything will be explained someday. I think he's going to. But in this case, we get a pass. God actually gives whys. He gives a, a why for why I want you to worship. He doesn't just say, do it because I told you. There are reasons for it. We can go deeper to that. And if you're honest about it, I mean, really, if you're only worshiping because you're supposed to, it's really hard to connect in relationship with God, right? If you're told just to love someone because you're supposed to, it's really hard to conjure up those feelings, right? It's hard. Well, God gives a reason why we can worship, and we're going to get down even deeper. The next one, it's not just thanksgiving. I'll say it again. I'm not 
downplaying any one of these things. Thanksgiving is an integral part of our praise and our worship. But if all that we do is, and we, we summarize our praise as being, thank you for all the things you've given me, chiefly among them eternal life, if that is all that your praise of God is, it's missing something still. Because the reason you're praising him is only when he gives you things. And if for some reason it appears that he's cut off that supply, you're going to stop praising. All that joy and that, oh, I am so thankful for what God gave me when our country was running great, when things were going good, when it seemed everyone knew the law of the Lord, at least in some way. Now they don't, and I don't even know how to praise God. Thanksgiving can't be the sum of your praise. It's got to be deeper even than that. Have you guys ever thought about the fact that if you had been a contemporary with Jesus, you grew up, by the time he's, he started his ministry at 30 years old, you're in your mid, early 30s, maybe late 20s. Grew up in Jerusalem, same, same area, same country, same nationality, same law, same rules. <clears throat> grew up in a God-fearing home, went to synagogue every Sabbath. <clears throat> the people that you would have been standing next to and maybe lifting your hands and worship with, singing songs. I might be backwards projecting a little bit here. Um, maybe some eyes closed. The guy next to you might have been the Pharisee, the Sadducee, the scribe, the priest, pastor, in old terms, you'd have to say rabbi. But these guys, the ones that, that cried crucify him, were not the villains and the scoundrels, the homeless, the people that are just low lives living on welfare and taking advantage of the system. No, no, it was, it was the religious leaders. The ones that maybe a couple years ago you were sitting in church with. That's a sobering thought. And yet God, look at Matthew, turn to Matthew 15.8. I know you guys know the passage, most likely, but I want you to look at this. Because this should break your heart. Jesus, in Matthew 15a, I'll go back into 7 a little bit. He quotes Isaiah here. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? And he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In vain do they worship me. That, to me, that's terrifying. How do I keep from vain worship? How do, I keep, how do I keep from falling into a trap where my lips are honoring God, but my heart is far from Him? I think it's easier to do than we think. Turn back to Psalms 16 once more where we started today. When we get down to the core, the heart of worship, we start to see something different. When you read through the Psalms especially, this is one of the greatest values of the Psalms, you see an inward expression of the heart being manifested in music and poem and, and lyrical wonder just as they 
exclaim these things. Psalm 16, you look at some of the things through here. Verse 2, you see, I have no good apart from you. Verse 6, I have a beautiful inheritance. That's not just talking about earthly. He's talking about the inheritance he has in God himself. Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. I shall not be shaken. Always before me. Verse 9, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My whole being. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Last week we sang um, a common song we've sang for decades. As the deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for you. Psalm 42. Psalm 63. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. If you think these psalmists are only talking about the life that's to come, about heaven, then you're going to miss out on the entire crux of what the gospel was for. The gospel wasn't just for what comes next. These psalmists are talking about their life experience now, in this life. They're talking about a joy and a wonder and an excitement in the Lord that to me is just, it's, it's amazing that they can have this much. All throughout the Psalms, you see more and more of this. And you see these kinds of passages in Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Psalm 145, 16, you open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Do you guys realize how bold these statements are? We sing them. We put them in songs. We talk about there's nothing I desire besides you, but is that really true? Or is it just in this hypothetical, theoretical, uh, church-only sense? When you walk out the door, is there nothing that you desire besides God? I can't say yes. Not always. And this is where this message has pierced my heart right through. This is, this is penetrating down to the core of me on everything about my Christianity. Do I really desire God? And do I really believe he is fully satisfying? Look at these guys. They actually tasted and saw the Lord is good and they're screaming it. You've got to taste him too. There's nothing else I even, nothing that compares to it. He, he, he excites my heart in, some, in a way that nothing else can. If you get nothing out of today other than this, this is the core. Down at the very foundation of where worship comes from, it is this. It comes from treasuring God above all else. Him being the greatest treasure that you find. Not something that you feel like, oh, I guess I have to leave this hide to leave my home, my family, my friends. I got to do this thing that God called me to do. I've got to follow Jesus because I guess he's the great pearl. It's not like that. It is a joy. You leave everything with joy. You follow him with joy because he's better. And that is what they're talking about in this. And this is, this is where worship begins. It's treasuring God.
we have to get out of looking at this as just a purely theoretical or, yeah, okay, um, I'll add that to the list of things to do. Treasure God above all else. It's not just a to-do. This is wipe the slate clean and put God at the core of everything that brings you joy and satisfaction. One of the speakers there at the conference said, you're not praising God if you're not enjoying God, and that's why so many people miss him. And later he also said, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. This must be the state of our heart. And if he's not, it's time to look at some boundaries, some false idols that you've put up. I, uh, I titled this message, The Wellspring of the Heart. It could have been titled a lot of different things, but we're going to stick with that because that's, that's what I'm trying to illustrate is the wellspring of the heart starts with this source, God pouring into it and it coming out from us. And this is where we begin to look at where praise actually gets to. Uh, also at the speaker, couple of, or at the conference, a couple other quotes that spoke to this. The song must be in the heart before it can be in the room. John MacArthur. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks and sings. And out of the fullness of God, the heart has a reason to sing. Alistair Begg. You guys know Jesus prophesied when he was talking to the the Samaritan woman. He said the day is coming, and even now is, when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. It's going to come from the spirit within, and it's going to be true worship. Right here, I want to interject a looming question that I don't know if anyone else has struggled with. If you have, or if you haven't, you will. Um, you may be struggling with it now, or you may have just buried it. In all the commands that God gives to worship him, come worship me, come, enjoy the fullness. Worship the Lord, bow to his throne, fear the Lord. In all these commands, how is he not a megalomaniac? You guys ever wrestled with that? If you haven't, you'll meet an atheist who has. I promise you, Richard Dawkins sure has. I have, I've struggled with this in the sense of, not that I've questioned whether God's a megalomaniac, but the fact that I haven't had a real good answer. And I've, I haven't had someone come and say, ask that question, but in the way that I'm always trying to plan ahead for every situation, I've thought about what happens if that question comes. How will I answer it? I mean, think about it, if we're really honest, how can a humble God demand worship of himself? That's what I'm talking about. Maybe you're like, what's a megalomaniac? Is that a villain in your kid's cartoons? No. Sorry. How can a humble God demand worship of himself? C.S. Lewis struggled with this before he became a believer. He was an atheist. He wrestled against God for many years. Many of you guys know that. One of the greatest things that hindered him was the command in Scripture where we were commanded to praise and worship God. To him, this seemed like, and I quote, a vain woman seeking praise for her own beauty. He couldn't get past it. But then he realized something. 
In the Reflections on the Psalms, he writes this. I'm going to put the quote up so we can all follow it. The most obvious fact, realize he writes this in the 40s, so some of the vernacular we've gotten, it's harder for us to follow sometimes, but we'll, we'll try. Most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or giving honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless, sometimes even if, shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought into check. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flower, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time the most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks, the misfits, and the malcontents praised least. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise what they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended upon me absurdly denying to us, as regards to the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what we indeed can't help doing about everything else we value. In the next page in the book, he writes this. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. When we view it this way, we realize that joy in anything has to culminate somewhere. When you love something, a favorite sports team, a favorite drink, a favorite food, a favorite hobby, that joy builds and builds and builds until you're telling someone about it with joy on your face, right? That's just normal life. And when C.S. Lewis realized this, he realized something very profound. Praise is at the end of the train. It's not at the beginning. Oh, I guess I'm I got to do this for you guys. <laughs> Line goes that way. Uh, we're linear here in the West. Um, praise is, is, as you can see, a crescendo getting greater and greater until it overflows. It's the cup filling up to fullness until it overflows. It's the volcano finally erupting from pressure. It is, it's the end result. And, and when you look at it this, it's not something you just do here at the beginning and hope that an experience follows. See, this is what's wrong, I think, in a lot of our experience right now in the Western church, is we think if we just do it right here, this experience will follow. This great feeling, this great emotion will follow. And, and, we, and so all the emphasis is back here. If we just do worship right, we'll get them into the mood. We'll get them into the zone. But biblical worship is this, you view God, you read about him, you get more excited about him, you see him, and pretty soon you can't help but praise him, and it's blowing out. And it really doesn't matter what song's on the screen on Sunday morning, if it lines up to what's in your heart, praise him. 
Let it out. I've never heard that song, but it's perfect. I'll sing it. That's what true biblical praise is about. And this is what was a turning point for C.S. Lewis. As I've read, this is actually, this was a turning point in uh, John Piper's life when he came to the point where he realized, this is all about desiring God. So he started Desiring God Ministries. It was all about, at the core, at the heart, it's about a relationship, a love with God. This is the magnificent part about it, though. Because we're still answering the question, how is God not a megalomaniac, right? I haven't drifted from that. When God says, praise me, render me worship, he's viewing the end result. He's saying, I want you to enjoy me so much that you can't help but praise me. He's seeing the whole picture. He's saying, I want you to be sucked into this relationship with me, to experience the fullness of joy in such a way that it can't help but come out and praise for me. Now, if there was a greater good in the universe, God would be an idolater to tell us to worship him instead of anything else. But there is no greater good. There can be no greater good. He invented good. He is the invention of joy, the source of joy. So for him, though it may seem humanly humble, for him to, we might want him in our great wisdom to say, it's, it's not very humble of you to say, um, don't worship me. Or it's not very humble of you to say, worship me. We might try to impose that on him. He knows that if I were actually to say that, I would be saying, you can't experience the fullness of joy that, that I want you to experience. Just because it comes from him doesn't make it any different. So when he commands us to worship him, it's because he wants us to enjoy him to the fullness of the fullness of joy that he designed us to live on. True worship, as a result, begins with a proper view of God. And we have to come back to this. When you open your scriptures, when you read it, when you do a Bible study, when you pray, it's all about seeing God in a way. You read it so that you see him. You, you read it so that you get to know him, so that that fullness of joy is poured into your heart in a way that you can't help but praise. Good, uh, good passage for you guys to read this week. We don't have time to go into it today. But if you're taking notes, open up Psalms 8 and just go through that and study it. The reason why... It's, so I will say this, not every psalm is this way. Not every psalm starts in this way, but it specifically begins with God and his glory. It looks purely at God and his glory and who he is, and you see praise come forth from that. Okay? There are many psalms in which it doesn't start that way. And this is a whole topic that we're going to talk about next week. There are times when... Um, there are blockers in our life. There's times when we need some get-by solutions till we see God. There's times when you open the scriptures and it's just dry as bones. And you're saying, where is God? I really need him right now. I felt him on the mountain. I don't feel him now. I experienced that joy. It overflowed in worship. And now I'm not feeling that. That does come. We're going to talk about that. But not today. 
Today we're talking about this, this core, where it starts, where it comes from. And I want you to see that. So some questions as we begin to close here. What triggers worships, worship from you? Think about it. What have you become accustomed to? Do you need a certain song style? Do you need a certain artist, a certain music, a certain church service style? Do you need a liturgy or a certain prayer read or a certain preacher to be up front or a certain speaking style, a dynamic speaker or a quiet speaker or how the speaker dresses? What gets you into your worship? And try to take those things, package them up and set them aside. I want you actually to burn them, but I'm being gentle. Set them aside for a while and just view God. We shouldn't need to stand up front as music leaders or preachers and, and try to work you into a state of worship because we're missing the whole thing. We're causing a fake version of it. We're causing a false sense, something that's, well, it's like drinking soda or caffeine or something that fires you up for the next hour, but then it burns out, right? It's not, it's not going to last. And if, if you're going to a source to try to get fired up, it's not going to get very far. I will say this, though. This takes time. And in this, I am speaking not from a long history with lots of wisdom and gray hair on my head to be able to tell you I started this and it worked so great for me 40 years ago. I feel in my own heart I'm just beginning. It takes time to condition your souls. There are many wellsprings that I've run to that are not God, that I go to when I've had a stressful day, that I just want to unwind for the night, I just want to check out, it's been a long time. I'm not even going to tell you what mine are. You fill in your blanks. You know If you're not going to God for satisfaction, it's going to take some time to get used to. It's like learning to eat healthy after eating a steady diet of cheeseburgers your whole life. I still can't eat celery. I'm working on it. <laughs> but it, it takes time. Eventually, you'll enjoy the celery stick. I like carrots. And as I said, this isn't always the norm. Um, there, are, there are dry spells. There are times when his face seems to be blocked. And sometimes, I will say, you need to come to Sunday. You need to get around other believers that are worshiping, that have been experiencing God in a way that's just exploding out of everything they say and sing and do. You need that. I get it. We all do, okay? But my question is just this. Which is the normal experience for you? If your normal experience is that, every week I need to go be around people that are following the Lord or else I'm just dead in the water, then there's a problem. You're sick. You're spiritually sick. You've been eating too much junk food. You need to get into the Word and be able to see this yourself so that you are lifted up as you experience the fullness of the joy that God offers you. You may know this, you may not, maybe you've forgotten it, but your soul was made to run on this. Uh, a lot of times I think we, uh, when we're talking to unbelievers, we'll talk about this hole in our heart that was there, and we say it was made to be filled with God. We preach the gospel message, and, 
and we say Christ will fill that hole, and that is all absolutely true. But for a moment today, I want you to, to realize that it doesn't stop there. I'm really stretching it here, but for the sake of the picture, when Christ comes in and fills that hole, he opens up a funnel in which the fullness of God is supposed to keep pouring into your heart. Andrew's artwork today in the bulletin shows a waterfall, and I want you guys to think about that. A little funnel standing under a waterfall and just how that would pour into your heart. That is the picture of salvation. It's not just that Jesus plugs the hole and fills that gap. It's that God wants to fill you up to the point where you're overflowing continually. If you're like me, it's pretty easy to connect this to spiritual fullness, being filled up spiritually. It's a little harder to get our mind wrapped around the idea of my heart and my flesh cry out for you. Taste and see that the Lord is good in the spiritual sense too. And the physical, both physical and spiritual. When we really look at that, but I challenge you to look at that. The ways that you're being satisfied, whatever it is. And and I'll warn you, don't try to think of it as a one-to-one. You're going to get really confused spiritually and, and physically. You have to see that God is going to satisfy you in a different way, but he will satisfy your flesh. That's the promise. That's what the psalmist experienced. You see, the sin that we hold on to, it, it promises to satisfy our flesh, and in one way it does. It satisfies a little bit. And we say, that's good enough. I'm good with that. I want that. Sounds good. I felt satisfied. But it's not the same that God is going to offer. And if you will just wait on the Lord, all throughout the Psalms, again, waiting on the Lord, you will wait on the Lord till your soul is satisfied. It will be. Both your heart and your flesh will be satisfied. We're going to um, move straight into communion, which I'm also going to do. And Churchill, would you mind going and getting the children at this point? But as we, as we begin to turn that, and we look at communion, we look at the sacrifice of Christ, how he 